I'm Tabitha Rock. And I'm Sam Davenport. Born and bred in Melbourne, we live and breathe property and we know the Melbourne market like the back of our hand. We've both been buying and selling real estate in Metro Melbourne for over two decades combined and we've learned a few lessons along the way. All right, Sam. We're back. Welcome back to the Prop Culture Podcast. Your gals are back. (laughs) Talking about a very serious topic today. Four things to check pre-purchase. And this is a step that so many buyers skip. And I think it they especially skip it when they've looked at so many property or perhaps they've been on a few auctions or put offers in a few properties and been unsuccessful. Then their standards start slipping, what they're checking starts slipping and costly mistakes can be made. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, running the due diligence is, you know, setting the brief, working out why, what we're buying, where and why, and all those things is sort of part one. Um, Obviously, the search is part two. And then the due diligence, you know, it's such a critical step to the successful purchase of a property, you know, making sure that you're not um, missing anything that is, you know, not obvious on initial inspection. Mm-hmm. And just double checking everything, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, taking your time, being rational about it, not letting your emotions get involved, just ticking the boxes. Um, and obviously, we do that for our clients with, you know, less emotion involved than they would do for themselves. But certainly these four things are sort of baseline what we check every time. Yeah. And we do a lot more checks than these four, but we often get asked by friends and family who are um, hitting us up for advice about just the four top things. What what are the key things that I should be looking out for? And I think to kick us into play, let's talk about planning applications and zoning. Boring. Sounds sounds boring. <laughs> sounds very boring and dry, but it is super critical. So important. Um, and, and it's because the change in zoning yeah. can massively change what people can build on a site. So if you're even looking at a little period home from an apartment on a quiet residential street to a main road, it is so critical to be aware of what zoning is surrounding you. So Mm. obviously the contract of sale will have what that actual property is zoned, but you really need to research what is around you. Exactly, yeah. It goes hand in hand with checking the planning permits and approvals that are currently sitting with council. Obviously we can't know what's going to happen long-term in the future. We can gauge roughly what might happen in the short-term future by having an understanding of, you know, zoning of the neighbouring properties. If there's any lapsed plans that were approved a couple of years ago for, you know, a two-storey townhouse on your northern boundary that were sitting with council, they lapsed. You know, you can sort of assume that the chances of that happening or being approved again is a lot higher than mm-hmm. if you've got a you know single dwelling that's been beautifully renovated internally, single level. It's unlikely that that property is going to change. Whereas if you've got you know a dilapidated sort of looking vacant freestanding house mm-hmm. that's had past approvals, 
sitting with council from 10 years ago, you know, there's a higher chance that something's going to happen there. But time and time again, I've even seen people say, oh, there's just a cute little period home next to this home or on the northern boundary. Like nothing will happen to that. I'm sure it's got a heritage overlay. And in fact, so many of them don't. And so many of them, if you're remotely near, located near a main road, that growth zone that the main road, all the properties on the main road has, often goes a few houses into that quiet residential street. So in fact, that little period home can be sold to that property that faces the main road. They're sold together or built up together. And then this massive monstrosity is getting built next to you. And to be honest, I just think, especially in Victoria, what councils allow in terms of height, and while we've got height restrictions now, they will change. And so it's even more critical for you to be across this and across the zoning surrounding Mm. the property you're considering. I mean, classic example, I had um, a friend of a friend by, you know, the elusive... Uh, The old friend of a friend. The eh? old friend of a friend, keeping it fake, you know. We don't (laughs) name and shame up here. Um, But they... They got this elusive off-market. They were buying through a friend of a friend and it was all great and they were getting a deal because it was through a friend of a friend. Lo and behold, they purchase a property, they settle on it only to realise there's a plan in a council for a massive eight-storey apartment complex going up right on their boundary, um, right outside one of their windows, which is not an uncommon story. I mean, I know of so many people that get, an inkling that something might be developed in a block near them, straight away they're putting their property on the market because they don't want to live in it through that construction or they don't want to live in it after the construction because it might obscure natural light or something. Exactly. And they don't want to sell while while either of those are happening. So they sell before, quickly. um, It's exactly that. You've just hit the nail on the head, obviously. (laughs) But it's it's affecting potentially the livability of the property post-development, but critically the, the value of the property. You know, the value of the property during construction plummets mm-hmm. because people come in and they just think, what? How could I possibly? And then post-construction, while something is there, there is a little bit more of a tendency for a buyer to accept what is. So if it's there, it's existing, they will accept it Mm -hmm. rather than it's almost worse to sell it with plans approved and the looming possibility Mm -hmm. of a development than it is to sell when that development's been finalised. But naturally, if whatever effect it's having on your property, whether it be on the natural light or on on the outlook or the view or the privacy or any of those things on the overlooking that's going to affect the value of the property. Mm -hmm. So having an understanding of if you're looking to buy a property, checking what the zoning is, not only obviously of the property you're purchasing, but of the surrounding properties. um, And then also checking for council planning permits and any approvals of any surrounding property. We don't just check the ones that are on the direct boundary line. We like to check what's in the street, again, to give us an understanding of what may be in the future. The point to raise with planning applications, like it's very common. We're a developing city to have planning yeah. applications in a council. We looked at a property out in Reservoir for a client recently and there was planning permits in a council for a two-townhouse site next to it. It was on the eastern boundary. It wouldn't affect natural light, no overlooking. It wouldn't um, negatively impact value. In fact, because the area was gentrifying and money was being spent in the street, it was a positive. So that was no reason to walk away from that property. 
But it just is that awareness like, hey, okay, we're actually pregnant and we're about to buy this house. Are we comfortable living in a newborn with the construction going on next living door? Living in a newborn? L- Where? Oh, living with. <laughs> you know me, I'm just rubbing hey, on. I know, living with a newborn through construction. And, you know, so much stuff comes with construction. The le- the dust, people don't understand it unless you've lived ne- nearby mm. a construction site, but the dust is just on another level. Um, but also, you know, they're blocking your street. Your street might be closed for a period of time, um, which they can get council approval to do. So, yeah, the, the livability going through it, I mean, it's just, you know, you'd almost call it traumatic. No, too no, far. No, too far. We, trauma yeah. is such a buzzword, isn't it? It is. But, okay, so that's number one, planning applications and zoning. We forgot a critical part to tell tell the people. What is that? Where to check these. So oh, the yeah. simple place is to... Call up council. Yeah. That is where you go to for finding out. Yep. Planning department, um, what planning applications are in, in the surrounding area. You have to have the addresses ready. You can't just give the address of the property you're looking to buy and then be like, all the houses surrounding. All the ones around it. It needs to be exact addresses. I reckon max out at maybe five or six or else they start getting real annoyed or maybe do a two-phased call situation. (laughs) Um, And then two main sites is planningalerts.org. That's also a really helpful one. You can search by the closest um, applications to you or the newest. Um, And then also Vic Plan um, is another one where you can research the zoning surrounding you. Yeah. So some key Key tips there for the kids. Yeah, a little bit of homework, a little bit of a takeaway. (laughs) So the next thing that we check in, because once you've done that check, you might uncover something that um, means you're not going to pursue the property. So, for example, specifically it's likely to be some sort of large development, Mm neighbouring development. If you see that and you think, "I, I don't accept I will not proceed here. You know, you're not going to take the next step, which is going to be to engage a, a conveyancer or a solicitor to check the contract of sale for you. So prior to sending that off, a lot of the conveyances and, and solicitors that we work with, obviously because of the volume that we sort of send their way and because of the fact that we're not getting them to check contracts willy-nilly, we're there willy-nilly. I love the word willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. <laughs> Is that just an Australian term? Surely oh. Americans aren't throwing out willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I usually say that either. I love willy-nilly. I use it all, all right, the let's time. Use it. Willy-nilly. Um, yeah, so when we're obviously by the time we're in a position where we're getting a contract checked by a conveyancer for our clients, we're pretty serious. We, we, we know are. we're likely to not only just submit an offer, maybe bid at auction, but likely to purchase the property. So anyway... Prior to doing that, there are a couple of things that we do check ourselves in the contract of sale, just again to eliminate sort of proceeding through the process if we uncover something that's a big enough deal that we decide not to proceed. Um, And those are largely going to be related to a few sort of points within the contract. Yeah. And we, so we have a look at them. There's a few uh, things that you can look out for yourself in contracts, um, but always obviously get a licensed conveyance or a solicitor to check these contracts. This is a non-negotiable, but a few things to look out for. If you're buying a block out in the outer suburbs, you really need to look um, at the titles page and see if they've got any covenants on it. One of the key ones to look out for is a single dwelling covenant. Not super common, but you definitely do find them around. And that means you can't do a subdivision on that block. Um, So that is very much key. Your 
conveyance or a solicitor will flag that one for you because um, it is obviously a major deal breaker for a lot of people. For a lot of people, yeah. But there's a couple of other random ones as well. Like there's a whole section of Elstonwick that's got a covenant on the land whereby, first of all, they've got single dwelling covenants so and they're big family homes. So they're all sort of 600 plus square mm. metre blocks with big backyards. So the chances of people wanting to have a swimming pool there are pretty high. You know, we've got mm-hmm. young families buying properties that are likely going to want a swimming pool in their big backyard. But that whole area has a covenant on it where you can't remove dirt, which means you can't dig down to build a swimming pool. Mm. Council will approve it if you apply to remove it. They will. These covenants are how old? Like, yeah, they're you know, very 50 old. plus years old. But again, knowing that and understanding that, Totally. Before you buy the property is key. I mean, the covenant, how about the covenant covenant that you found down in Frankston North yeah. about the front fence? Front fence. You look around the street and you think, there's not one front fence here. Not one. There was a couple of random wire fences <laughs> going around, like really sort of minimal see-through wire fences. I thought that's weird. And obviously in checking the contract, we Mm. saw that there was a covenant in place on that entire area um, whereby you were not allowed to erect a front fence at all. Erect. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's not even a funny one, you child. Erect? Um, That's a funny word. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This is PG. We'll have to get that bleeped out. Erect a front fence. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm blushing. I know. Anyway, so Covenant says there's more than that, but those are the ones that we've come across recently. But the main one that is a huge deal breaker for a lot of people, if they're looking at buying a block of land with the possibility to subdivide down the track and that block has a single dwelling covenant, you're out, likely. Another massive deal breaker um, when you see this in the contract is an easement running through the middle of a property. So easements are very common to run down the side of a fence or along the back boundary. Yeah. um, About a metre in. But they and they're usually related to sewer or water. Um, But what you need to know that if you did want to put, for instance, a pool in your backyard, you need to set that pool in to the house mm. off the back fence. So, yeah, I mean, the, the technical sort of term for an easement, an easement is a right held by someone to use land belonging to someone else for a specific purpose. And the common examples of easements and really the only examples of easements that we have are related to, as you said, drainage, sewerage and carriageway easements, which are a right held by someone to use the land. So that someone is likely to be, you know, um, Yarra Valley water. Yeah. For example. And the important reason why to, why you have to be across easements is you actually can't really build on them. You have to get approval. Mostly it's most common to see driveways on the top of easements and things like that. Mm. But anyway, this is just another thing to look over the contract and be be aware yeah. of. Well, there's a good example of that um, villa unit that I was looking to buy for the client in Murrumbina and they had, you know, they, this couple, young couple were looking to buy a two-bedroom villa unit. You know, they had under a million dollars to spend and we found this awesome unit with this huge, huge backyard um, and it was a really unusually shaped backyard mm. with, you know, it was sort of a hexagon. The land was sort of a hexagon in shape. And whenever you see that, you can almost guarantee that there's pipes running under mm-hmm. there, that there's sewerage, drainage pipes, major drainage pipes running underneath that st- that sort of shaped land. And lo and behold, we checked the contract, checked the 
um, checked the title and you can see there's easements running all the way through that backyard, meaning there was no possibility to extend that property out in any capacity. So the unit that you're buying is the unit that will stay. Yeah. You know, the chance of even being allowed to do um, a deck on that the amount of pipe work underneath is pretty low. Yeah. And it's uh, that one, another which your solicitor or conveyancer will pick up, sometimes hard for the layman to find. Um, but something you can definitely find yourself is what the zoning of the actual property is. So here in Richmond, we've got a little sub-suburb called Cremorne and a lot of the properties there are zoned commercial. And the reason why it's important to know if it's a normal sort of general residential or neighbourhood residential zone is because they don't affect getting lending. But if you are zoned in a commercial and you're buying a, a little residential property, like a single fronted terrace, sometimes the banks don't like that. Sometimes some banks only lend like up to 70%. Mm-hmm. So it's just another thing to check on the contract and make sure you're across. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you are looking to buy a townhouse or obviously an apartment, there is going to be a, a body corporate attached with the... If there's three plus dwellings on the block. But even if you've got, I mean, you've got obviously inactive body corps, mm. if you've got side-by-side townhouses where they've got their services on a shared area or they might have a shared driveway. Um, I went into one this morning where they've got a shared turntable. Oh, down in the okay. in, down in the basement garage. So yeah, there's a there's an inactive body corporate in those scenarios where you've got very little common land, but usually there may be public liability insurance payable for mm-hmm. that common land. Um, but what we're checking for when we're talking about body corporates and um, in a contract of sale is if it's in an apartment block, you're looking to buy an apartment and you've got an apartment um, contract in front of you, you you are going to have the most recent AGM minutes, which is the annual general meeting minutes. So the body corporate obviously meets annually, as the name suggests. Well, to be honest, I've been seeing some contracts. The old COVID excuse really really got them good. They're like, oh, I don't have to do my job this year. We'll just delay the uh, annual general meeting two years. Yeah, to next year. Oh, my gosh. Like, stop using COVID and it's an excuse. We can all meet up on Zoom. Yeah. Like, if you're part of a body corporate, people, make sure that is up to date and that is done yearly. That is why you pay your body corporate manager to manage yeah. your your property. asset, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting, like contracts, when you're reading a contract, it can seem overwhelming and confusing when you're flicking through all the pages because it's mm. a big document. But once you find the AGM, if you really do start to look at it and read through it, it's very straightforward. Mm. You know, it's going to give you an overview of any discussions they're having in relation to upcoming work work that they need to do but is not upcoming, which is a problem. You know, special levies that may be being put in place, any maintenance issues that they're being that are t- being talked about. And again, you don't want to purchase a property, move into it and then get hit with a $5,000 special levy to fix the three lifts that are in the building. You know, mm-hmm. you need to understand what you're walking into as best you can. You know, again, we don't know what's going to happen long term in the future, but we can mitigate those issues by sort of checking out those AGM minutes, seeing if there's anything untoward in there that you need to be across. And you can always call the body corporate and ask questions. That's a great tip. If you've got questions, I just give them a buzz. Just say, hey, I'm looking to buy this property. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about this or that? 
Um, sometimes they can be a little bit cagey because you're not an owner in the block, but sometimes they'll just tell you everything. Yeah, I've had two recent encounters with some OC managers and they have been absolutely delightful. Like yeah. I think in the past it's just been like really difficult to get on to them. They've been super unhelpful. They've overworked. They're managing 50 million buildings and, you know, they – they're lost. But recently I'm like, yes, I'm referring you guys to any blocks that I feel have less Dodgy than, managers. Yeah, less than desirable perhaps. Less than desirable. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to go with. But just while we're on um, apartments, I think it's important to also touch on the different titles yeah. of apartments. And so there's three um, company share, Stratum and Strata. I had, um, I can remember back in my selling days, there's actually quite a few company share apartments on Power Street in Hawthorne. Mm. Um, You'll also find them around sort of Elwood, East Melbourne, exactly. And they're always the most beautiful. They're always stunning blocks. So we had this poor buyer rock up on auction day, you know, another story where they just rock up on auction day and then purchase without reading the contract or doing any due diligence. And in fact, that property was um, company share and she had real difficulty. I think actually someone had to lend her money in the end to be able to settle because banks really dislike company share um, apartments. Mm. So just making sure that, well, A, don't rock up on auction day and buy a property that you haven't done any research on. That's where we're going through. Four things to check pre-purchase, yeah. <laughs> um, what this whole thing's about. But, uh, yeah, just be wary of that and always ask your conveyancer, like, is this normal? Will the banks have a problem? Is this standard title? And also ask your lender. You know, I had I had one not long ago where it was Stratum and, you know, from our perspective we like to buy, like, perfect property and the reason why we do that is because when it comes time to sell, we want your buyer pool to be as big as possible so that you're maximising that potential capital growth. Mm-hmm. But when we um, looked at this, you know, amazing stratum property for these clients and they loved it, um, I just double-checked with their lender and I said, look, they're, they're, they want to stay there really long term. They're comfortable with the prospect of it, eliminating a small percentage of buyers in the future when they go to sell can you get them their loan approved on this property? And their lender double-checked it. We had a meeting with the conveyancer and it was okayed by everyone. Yeah. Alternatively, we may have had a no from the lender. But it's just, I mean, it is getting the right team, which we should talk about another time. Oh, we will. Really, We we will. But it, yeah, just make sure everyone's on the same page, your broker, your conveyancer and, you know, your advocate if you're working with one. Yeah, the last thing being special conditions. I mean, the contract contracts now these days uh, can be filled with a lot more special conditions than they used to be. And I think mm-hmm. solicitors and conveyancers are, you know, doing what's best by their client, who's the vendor. But if you're the buyer, you want to make sure you're completely protected as well. And all those general conditions that are in the contract protect both parties And a lot of special conditions can be put in there to protect the vendor only and they actually delete the the general conditions. So you need, we don't check that for our clients. We always get that level of contract checked by the conveyancer, get approval on all of those special conditions or sometimes and oftentimes we're deleting, you know, one, two or three of those clauses, replacing them with different ones or negotiating with the vendor's side on what everyone is comfortable with. Yeah. And gosh, we could talk about contracts forever, but we should probably move on. But 
It's important that if your conveyance or a solicitor does recommend changes, you do have a conversation, put it in writing to the agent well in advance of an auction or your offer. They need to go back to the vendor solicitor, get that approved, and then you can submit your offer with those updated changes to the contract. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now moving on. Building and pest inspections. Oh, love a good building and pest inspection. Love a good. We love our building and pest inspector so much. We're probably going to get him on here as a guest. We will because he's a legend and he goes through properties with a fine tooth comb. He does. He does. What is that expression? That's it. Is it? Yeah. It always makes me think of knits though. Yeah. Fine tooth comb. Mm. Anyway. But building pest inspections, an investment of about 600 to 800 bucks, totally worthwhile. I mean, hello, you're spending your life savings on this property, do it. And I think there's a misconception with only do building and pest inspections on older properties. That is definitely not the case. Do them on the new, the old, the semi-old, the semi-new. Um, and they really just give, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this um, on the next podcast, but they really just give you a list of major and minor defects. And a lot of people hear the word major defect. They're like, great, not proceeding. That's a, a walk away, easy. But there are a lot of major defects that need to be considered major in the eyes of the building inspector and the law and their insurance company. But they are really able to be fixed without a huge amount of yeah. money spent or time and effort. So um, I think it's just also chatting to the building inspector and understanding, okay, so is this property that I'm looking to buy that I've got this building and pest inspection, is the th- problems you've found related to the era? Like is this yeah. common for the era com- of property? Yeah. So it's not even necessarily property specific. It's like for like property. Mm-hmm. Most likely you're going to be looking at, you know, if it's not this one, the next one's going to be a similar property style or type or, yeah. you know, built in the same era because that's what the brief says. Um, then is it is it expected? Is it normal in relation to this property type and the age of the property? I mean, we really look at building and pest inspections as a maintenance plan Mm -hmm. for the first few years of ownership. So if there's something in there, say, for example, the house needs a new roof, which is now a $30,000 cost that you were not aware of, you do not want to deal with that, that is not something you want to engage with, you're not going to proceed. That's a major defect that means you're no longer proceeding on the contract. But if, if it's just filled with, you know, regular standard to be expected major and minor defects, use that report, keep it, file it away. And when you're planning to do any sort of minor works on the property over the first few years of ownership, go back to the property report, look at what needs attention initially, you know, following year, year after. And they're also great. If you can't get that tradie out to your property to quote on something, send it through, send that report through to the tradie to quote on whatever, you know, works you wanted to be done, drainage, blah, blah, blah. And just say, well, have a look at this. This might help you give me a preliminary quote, but they're pretty intense documents. They're like seven. Many pages of like why um, this property is going to fall down tomorrow. Exactly. And that's exactly right. Like you walk into a property and you love it for all of these reasons. They're not mentioning any of those in the no. report. They're just giving you a list of all the terrible things. Yeah. And it can t- it can scare a lot of people and turn them off. But we're going to go into the building and pest inspections next ep. But the last thing that we do, and, you know, obviously it, we say everything is critical. It is. It's, it is mm. all critical. But Understanding how much you think the property is worth is obviously pretty imperative to the purchasing process. I mean, in Melbourne, the whole 
oh, yeah, just the auction quote plus 10%, right? That's my budget. Yeah. Like blows my mind. Plastic. And that's why you see properties and you're like, oh, that was such a good deal. That was a bargain. It's because it was typically quoted correctly. It didn't attract a lot of interest. And then at auction, it sold within the quote range. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think we predominantly work in Metro Melbourne. So that's why we keep mentioning auctions. But you can see the same in private sales. Um, there can be an asking price and then it actually sells for 50, 100 grand under that asking price. You think, wow, that was a good yeah. A good price. Yeah. Well, in the East, I mean, there is, there is no rhyme or reason. There is no rule of thumb. There is no standard way of advertising pricing to the market. Mm-hmm. Every individual agent within every agency does it differently. And because we've been doing it for so long, you know, we know certain agents in certain areas will quote conservatively. So other agents in different areas might quote quite top heavy. And oftentimes mm-hmm. we know that those properties with that agent, they generally pass in mm-hmm. and the vendors often much lower than what the advertised price was. So it is having an understanding of who you're dealing with, what they normally do, but beyond that, working out what you think it's worth. And the way that we do that is the way that the banks do that, which is looking at recent comparable sales. So obviously for you guys as buyers, you know, the best way or easiest way to do it is to jump on realestate.com or domain.com into the sold section and just put in a a rough range. So say, for example, you're looking at a property that's been quoted 1.1 to 1.2, you might put in a range initially of 1 to Mm 1.4 and just have a look and see what results you're seeing in front of you. Like, are they in line with the house that you're considering? Um, If they're not, narrow down that search and narrow down the price point a little bit more, maybe to 1.2 to 1.3. And if they're looking comparable, you know that that's now roughly where you're going to be looking, 1.2 to 1.3. Yeah. And I think that, Victoria, we've done a great thing by the introduction of the statement of information, which is on all the real estate listings. And now ideally is meant to give you three comparable sales. But what's a good idea is to look up those properties online and just see if they were actually comparable. So what was their land size in comparison to the property you're looking at? You know, was that one on a quiet residential street like this one is or actually on a main road? So clearly the one you're considering on the quiet residential street has to be worth a lot more. You can drill down on this. And I think buyers do, it is a bit of buyer beware. And so you do have to do your own research. The agent is there to market the property. They are there to work on the vendor's behalf and they are there to get the best price. And to be honest, when you see properties quoted conservatively, they typically have a bit of a flurry of interest and that drives the price. So, you know, from a vendor's perspective, from the function that they're meant to be serving, they are doing the right thing. So really drill down on the price, get your understanding, go there fully equipped with all the knowledge on how much you think the property's worth. That's a bit of homework. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's some good homework. And you'll get faster at this um, the more properties you check out doing these four things. But planning applications and zoning, getting the contracts reviewed, but definitely doing a run run your eye over it yourself. Building and pest inspection should be a non-negotiable and a really key monetary investment. And then looking at comparable sales and getting your head around value and really understanding if the asking price or the auction quote range is correct and approximately what you think it's worth based on recent sales. Mm, How does that sound, Sham? I love it. I love it. We love to run that DD. Marry F. Kill. You said that 
back to front and upside well, down. Well, actually, we've been saying F, Mary kill. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's marry F, kill. No, I like the our way. Okay. The prop culture way. Okay. F, Mary kill. Um, okay. Warehouse conversion. I love it. I love all of these. I love everything we do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, that's good, girl. That's good. If you don't love what you're doing, what do are you something doing? Something else. Warehouse conversion in a mixed-use zone, freestanding house with a potential development on the northern boundary, Oof. or a three-story townhouse in a large development. Oof! My gosh, you really got me. Got me on these. <laughs> I, I would have to the three-story townhouse in a large development. Eight large developments. I'm not about that life. You mean kill? Oh, yeah, kill. Kill. Oh, my God. I'm going <laughs> to say, what are you doing there? Don't no, no, do kill, it. kill. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting confused. Um, yeah, three stories as well. Like, hello. Terrible. Carrying Terrible. my groceries up three flights of stairs. No, thank you. Um and I'm f***ing that freestanding house with a potential development on the northern boundary because while you're cute, you're probably not cute for that Long much. Term. Yeah, that yeah. much longer. Like on the northern boundary as well, that is bad. Um, and obviously marrying the warehouse conversion. In a mixed-use zone. Yeah, because that's not a problem. A lot of them are in mixed-use zones. Actually, they've got the little commercial cafe on the ground floor. So I'm getting my soy latte from there and I'm skipping up to my <laughs> funky. Skipping up to my warehouse conversion. Exactly. Yeah. In Collingwood or something. Love Kill. that. North Melbourne. I see you there. I see you there. Thank you. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, same. Obviously. Kill the three-story townhouse in the large development all day, every day. I would feel like I'm living in the Truman Show. Yes. In a fishbowl. Yeah. Ev- overlooked through every window. Your living's going to be on the central level with a little balcony and that's it. I just can't. Can't deal with it. Um, freestanding house with potential development on Northern Boundary. To live through development, I reckon, would kill me. It's not the doing of the development. It's that's losing all your natural light. Well, yeah, 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 of course. Of course. But they're, even just the living through it. Yeah. Like that's 12 to 18 months minimum depending on what the development is. Yeah. Of horrendous, yeah, no. anyway, and obviously marry the warehouse conversion in a mixed-use zone. Love it. Love that's, it. That's it from your gals today. Catch ya.